From ESG to digital currency, back to ESG, the puzzle is starting to take shape. The Grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. If you're a business owner, you know hiring quality team members is a real challenge. And a bad hire can destroy workplace culture and cost you tens of thousands of dollars to unwind. That's why we use Red Balloon. They specialize in connecting job seekers and employers with aligned values without all of that woke nonsense. Over 15,000 job seekers visit redballoon.work every single week, looking for businesses that won't force them to pledge allegiance to a bunch of liberal policies. Every job seeker on Red Balloon pledges to pursue excellence in their work, create success for themselves and their employer, and avoid bringing personal political agendas into the workplace. At redballoon.work, learn about the packages for entrepreneurs, small businesses, larger enterprise businesses, and even a recruiter service to help you find the right people. Finding the right people can make or break your company's future. Check out redballoon.work today. Welcome to this week's News in Review. Even while traveling here on the grid, we watch the Newswire so that we can keep in touch with the major news stories that are important to you. So for our first story, we head to the never-ending culture war. Another transgender, another transgender female, another transgender female sports athlete, and another victory for a man competing as a woman. Austin Killips, a transgender female, finished in first place in the women's category in the Tour of Gila, which in the final event was in New Mexico. Killips' emergence on the cyclocross circuit was the reason that 35-time winner Hannah Arenasman if I'm saying her name correctly, has finally said she's just going to retire. And she said this because she has been trying to protect women's sports in the state of West Virginia, and she just basically said, I I give up. This is impossible to compete against biological men. No matter how hard you train, you're at a complete disadvantage. And you know what, Hannah? I would agree with you. So as we think about culture, California just keeps upping the ante. The, uh, California has what's called a reparations panel, and they just approved payments up to $1.2 million to every black resident. And what they did is they categorized these payments by the type of issue and the length of time that you resided in the state. So, for instance, they create payments for discrimination, for redlining, for incarceration. And if an example is if you're up to 71 years old and you're black and you've lived in California all your life, you can receive up to $1.2 million in reparation payments. I just wonder if Asians can get reparation payments from being unfairly impacted by racial quotas in colleges or white men being discriminated from not being able to get small business loans because they're not a minority. I mean, folks, come on. Where does this stop? Okay, there's also another story. Again, all in these kind of culture wars. There's a story about Marcy Bowers. Now, you guys don't probably know that name off the top of your head. I happen to know this person pretty well. This person was originally Michael Bowers. Michael became Marcy, and Marcy ended up becoming a transgender surgeon who spends 
or it used to spend half of their time in a small hospital in Trinidad, Colorado, doing transgender surgeries. And the same Michael who became Marcy had the other half of the time spent up in Seattle, Washington as an OBGYN physician. So I'll just let you wrap your mind around that and think if that doesn't sound crazy. Well, this person once said, Marcy Bowers once said that puberty blockers can cause irreparable harm. But now, no, everything is okay now. And I find this truth hard to reconcile. A 12-year-old kid is not responsible or old enough to smoke, drink, drive, or vote. Yet they are perfectly wise enough to decide life-altering, often irreversible interventions for affirming care. And we're called the hateful ones because we want to deny that care? Crap, what if my nine-year-old identifies as a successful Navy SEAL and outdoorsman and hunter? Do I just give them a gun and say, go for it? Gender-affirming care is one of the most misleading, sinister, and hideous descriptions of what truly is just barbarian medicine. The mantra, the guiding light, the beacon of the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm, is truly all but dead in Western medicine. Okay, we switch from culture to go to just crazy environmentalism type stuff. The, the left's war on fossil fuels just seems to know no, no boundaries. And here we go. The Biden administration, through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, is going after the prairie chicken. Oh, yeah, that sounds crazy, right? Well, they're saying it's an endangered species, and the area in which they're endangered is the entire bird's habitat, which includes the southwest quarter of Kansas, panhandles of Texas, and Oklahoma. And along with attorney generals of Texas and Oklahoma, a lawsuit was filed in federal district court to stop this. And the reason is, this whole group says the Biden administration doesn't even meet the statutory criteria for listing the species. So they think just on legal grounds that the, the administration has no standing. But a lot of people think this goes far beyond that. The, in reality, the Biden administration is moving forward with this, as listing them as an endangered species, because it doesn't really have anything to do with the prairie chicken. Rather, it really has more to do with just the war on fossil fuels at all, and that the Biden administration is trying to use this as an opportunity to attack cattle ranching which is one of the, the most disfavored industries of the woke left. They, they just hate cattle ranching. So how this works is they go after the prairie chicken and they say, you can't touch the habitat of the prairie chicken because it's endangered species. And they pick all this ranching land. If it's listed as endangered species, then you cannot touch that habitat. And if you can't touch that habitat and you're a farmer and rancher, you're toast. So speaking of the administration, this isn't a culture or environmental issue, but this goes to Hunter Biden, which is a story that just keeps on giving. Biden apparently is now referring to the possible indictment of his son, Hunter Biden, as a political witch hunt. Uh, of course, they, they always say that. But what some are saying is that the phraseology he's using is a warning that he is setting the stage for a pardon. And we all know that Biden has no qualms about using the federal government for his personal disposal and his personal benefit. But this one is really awkward. And I'm not sure that I know of any other case like this where you have a president and you have their son, especially when the president himself is likely, if not part of the criminal enterprise, is actually the leading voice behind the scenes in the criminal enterprise. So some of this is about timing. What if the DOJ indicts Hunter Biden after Biden has left the office and prayerfully after the inauguration of the next election? That's when I think Biden's leaving office. Can Biden preemptively pardon his son? Can he pardon his son and himself, as he likely has as much to answer for as Hunter does? What if Hunter is pardoned and the case against Hunter indirectly ties old Sleepy Joe, or ties to him? Does that mean this never sees the light of day? Well, probably. Folks, if it's one thing I'm learning about Washington, D.C., after all the grandstanding has long since faded, 
the inside the Beltway folks, they protect their own. And if I had to guess a percentage, probably 90% of criminal activity never results in jail time, but rather just a slap on the wrist. Things that would put the rest of us in jail for 20 years. Honestly, I don't know what to do about this because it seems to be a problem with both parties. Albeit, if you're a liberal Democrat, your chances of being indicted for anything short of murder is slim to none. Unless you happen to murder a conservative Republican, and then it would be labeled just as sanitizing the gene pool, and you would probably still be okay. And speaking of murder, this is a sad story. There was a shooting this weekend at the Texas Outlet Mall in Allen, Texas, that's left eight dead, including the suspect. We really don't know much at this point, but an AR-15 was involved, so the response is going to be predictable. I'm just telling you, get ready for it. It's another sad example of how an AR-15 jumped off the table, actually probably jumped itself out of the safe, then onto the table, self-loaded its magazine, popped around in the chamber, jumped in the car, drove itself to the mall, and started shooting. People, you do realize, right, that we had way, way looser gun laws 30, 40, 50 years ago, and these types of things never happened. What's the difference comparing then to now? I don't know. Let's see. Family destruction, removal of God from society, mental illness, no respect for the sanctity of life, desensitization of killing, and rampant abortion. So what do we do? We call for the outlawing of the weapons. You can legislate weapons, folks, but murder is always committed in the heart first, long before the actual action occurs. And finally, in election news, Trump is soaring in the GOP primary, and this is what the left wants, and it's what I'm afraid of. Absent of divine intervention, Trump won't win a general election. He just won't. He motivates the left too much. He is so polarizing. I believe God used him before, and in fact, I believe God actually called him, whether Trump realized it or not. But this time, I'm not so sure. But it doesn't really matter at this point, because likely he's going to be our candidate. And if so, we need to pray. We just need to pray for our country. I'll leave it at that. Okay, how about a scripture of the week? And this one, quite honestly, I'm just preaching to myself. It comes from Isaiah 14, verses 3 and 4, and then verse 7. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil, and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And then in verse 7, all the lands are at rest and at peace. I share that because I just know that we go through trials, that we go through suffering. But the Lord, I believe, calls, not just calls us, but will grant us at his appointed time days in which there is relief and we're at rest and that there's peace. So I wanted to leave with that this week. Folks, for this week's News and Review, that's a wrap. Okay, today we are discussing the E in ESG, which is environmentalism. Now, just a quick recap, as we did a podcast several weeks ago regarding ESG, this stands for Environmental Social Governance. It's not necessarily a household name, but you do hear ESG, and you're starting to hear it more in the marketplace as it becomes a pretty controversial political and social topic. So ESG, Environmental Social Governance, today we're talking about environmentalism. And don't get tuned out. Don't be distracted. This has significant ties to our conversation over the last couple of weeks in regards to digital currency. But be patient. We're going to get there. Okay, so when we talk about environmentalism, the word can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So let's just see what we find when you just Google it. Well, dictionary.com says that environmentalism is concern about an action aimed at protecting the environment. Learning to Give says that environmentalism is a movement and ideology 
that aims to reduce the impact of human activities on the Earth and its various inhabitants. The movement has evolved to build resilience towards the effects of global climate change in order to build a society capable of adapting to a rapidly changing Earth and finding sustainable ways to live in it. Okay, that was a mouthful. Finally, Merriam-Webster says that environmentalism is the advocacy of the preservation, restoration, or improvement of the natural environment, especially the movement to control pollution. So environmentalism often uses words like when you hear people just talk about it, you hear things like Mother Earth or harmony, sustainability, impact, resilience, and adaptation. And when you read those definitions above, who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, I don't want to destroy the environment. Far from it. And I don't support those who do. I don't want steel mills polluting the waterways. Or in the case of Aaron Brockovich, would never support Pacific Gas and Electric polluting the water of Hinkley, California with hexavalent chromium. So would it be fair to say that I'm an environmentalist? No way. Far from it. To me, stewardship is the key. That is the word that I feel most compelled to use. We should be good stewards of the earth because God's given it to us to use. But where do you draw the line? Well, in many cases, well, in many cases, keeping a company from polluting the water is easy. It's a no-brainer to draw that line. But what happens when environmentalism now requires you to dry up the farmland in order to protect the river smelt, basically a species of minnow? Is that okay? That seems like it's crossing the line. Or what about the Environmental Protection Agency declaring that standing water in your backyard is a protected wetland and subject to the full jurisdiction of the federal government? Well, that seems quite insane. Because it is. Yet these are just two small examples of exactly what is happening. Those weren't examples that I made up. Those are real stories. So what happens when the federal government decides it has a way to measure your environmental friendliness both as an individual citizen, but also your small business. And in that measurement, the government builds metrics, a scorecard, if you will. And when the scorecard gets issued, you come up short. You don't measure up. Well, these are the sorts of things that don't happen organically. These types of regulations and control only come from extreme, radical, progressive activism. I'm talking about environmentalism as a religion. And you don't think that environmentalism is a religion, or as even some might say, a cult? Well, I would beg to differ. I think whenever a movement becomes more important than people, that is a problem. So the New Atlantis describes it like this. Environmentalism, as a religion of hope and respect for nature, is here to stay. This is a religion that we can all share, whether or not we believe that global warming is harmful. Describing environmentalism as a religion is not equivalent to saying that global warming is not real. There's also other derogatory terms like tree huggers or environmentalist wackos that are used by the right. I heard Rush Limbaugh use environmentalist wacko all the time. It's a little bit funny. I mean, we jest in saying that, but where does this come from? It comes from this line of thinking. Save the whales. Save the trees. Save the planet. But kill the babies. That's why these derogatory terms were invented in the first place. Because that makes no sense. Another thing about environmentalism that really, really bothers me, and to me makes it like a cult, is that you have to be deceptive on one side of the argument in order to justify your stance on the other. So when I say that, what I'm really saying, to bring clarity to that, is you have to be deceptive 
on the real impact of environmentalism in order to justify your all-in nature to making sure that environmentalism is a driving force in our culture. So let's even be more specific. Let's just take electric cars. That's all the rage right now. In fact, electric vehicles are just one of the panaceas that's going to save the planet. We've all heard it. The government believes it. The elites believe it. There are billions of federal dollars poured into incentives for car manufacturers to make and sell these cars. Why? I mean, especially when you look at McKinsey and Company, as they did research, even as recently as 2017, where they showed that it costs $12,000 more to manufacture an electric vehicle as compared to its combustion engine counterpart, coupled with the fact that manufacturers don't even make a profit on the EVs, at least not without government payouts. And that's the key. Without the government incentives, they do not make a profit. And worse, the additional cost of the electric vehicle to a consumer to acquire that vehicle actually doesn't ever pay off in the amount of saved fuel. So let's just get this straight. Again, environmentalism down to electric cars. It costs more to make. You don't recoup the benefits and our tax dollars are being used to fund it. Then why would we be so heavily invested in this? One word, religion. In order to save the planet, we must switch to electric vehicles because of the zero carbon footprint. That's what we're told. Well, let's see if this argument holds a charge. How about the mining that takes place to produce lithium, cadmium, and nickel, which are the primary components in an EV battery? According to the Australian Nation Review, it may require as much as 25,000 pounds of brine for lithium. 30,000 pounds of cobalt ore, 5,000 pounds of nickel, and 25,000 pounds of copper ore. In fact, to get all of that, as much as a half a million pounds of mining may be necessary to produce all of that. Of course, when you Google this, you find fact checkers everywhere that say this is misleading. But me, I'm not just going to go for that. I'm actually going to read the commentary of the fact checkers. Well, what's interesting is, is that in those sites where we say, well, this is misleading or it's false, they don't actually dispute the mining itself. They just say, well, it's actually worse for combustion engine vehicles, so this is very misleading. Well, it's hard to believe, at least it seems to me it's hard to believe, that this is worse on combustion engines when you think about the fact that the rest of the car is the same. So, folks, that's the environmental impact of one single electric vehicle battery. That does not seem environmentally friendly to me. Well, at least when the car is manufactured, there's zero carbon output, right? Well, actually, that's wrong as well. Generally speaking, it takes 7,200 watts of electricity to charge an EV at home, and on average, about 400 kilowatts per month, or even 5,000 kilowatts of electricity per year. Okay, so you're doing that. You're plugging up your electric vehicle in your garage at night. Your electricity bill goes up. Big deal. At least it's totally environmental friendly. Well, not so fast. Where does that electricity come from? Well, in 2021, in the United States, the sources of electricity came from these following places. 20% from renewables, such as solar and wind and hydro, which, by the way, was actually way higher than I actually thought it would be. But I continue. 19% from nuclear energy, 22% from coal, 38% from natural gas. Whoa, 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 whoa. That means 60% of current electricity comes from, wait for it, fossil fuels? Are you telling me that to charge my electric vehicle, I'm actually consuming fossil fuels? Yep, that's exactly what I'm telling you. You are burning fossil fuels to help you not to burn fossil fuels. 
Sounds like the dog chasing the tail to me. Well, at least they aren't dumping worn-out engines into the landfill, right? Well, at least on this one you can make an argument because batteries are being used for secondary purposes once they're no longer viable for electric vehicles. But even then, the batteries eventually will expire and they won't hold a charge, and then they get dumped in a landfill. So even there, eventually, there is a negative environmental impact. I hope you see that being sold out for environmentalism in this area of electric cars is a long way from becoming the true save-the-planet elixir that it's touted to be. And this is important because you have to understand when someone is sold out for something that is not true, there's only a couple of options. Either the person doesn't know or, and this is much worse, they know but they don't care because of the money or what other sinister issue may be driving them. And worst of all, the federal government is already trying to shut down coal plants, which, as I just stated above, is 22% of our electricity source. So if you remove one-fifth of the capacity of the electric grid, how in the world are we going to deal with the surges of electric vehicles? In fact, I have friends that work at the local nuclear plant, and they tell me that if the government gets its desired, if they even get close to their desired levels, of electric vehicles on the road, the grid will literally collapse because there's absolutely no capacity in current state to charge them. And yet, this administration wants to remove even one-fifth of that existing capacity. I digress, but the unintended consequences of this are staggering. Okay, I see shared videos every day of one-year-old Johnny falling asleep with his face in his birthday cake. If you can share that video, surely you can share the grid with your friends and neighbors. Post it on Facebook, like it on YouTube, share it on Twitter, email it, text it. And for goodness sake, hit that like button and give us a five-star rating when you listen. Thank you for joining the fight for faith and freedom. Okay, so I've gone on a diatribe about electric vehicles, but this is just a small cog in a radical religious movement. And how in the world does this relate to environmentalism and ESG, which is most often tied to, at least right now, in the workplace? I'm so glad that you asked. So what is already happening is something called a carbon score. There are different ways to calculate this, but let it suffice to say that as a company, you are likely already scored and you don't even know it. You're scored on your environmentalism, friendliness. So let me give you an example of how this works. Uh, EcoVadis, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, it, it is a carbon rating system that's focused on assessing a company's carbon management system. And it's centered around what's called the PDA cycle. So that's like a process cycle that many of you may be familiar with. It's called plan, do, check, act. It's really... Uh, some some organizations use uh, RCAs, root cause analysis. Some use lean type terminology. PDCA is another way of just managing and doing change management. But listen to what they have to say. So it's going to take a minute, but I'm going to read to you how they talk about a carbon score. So there's three primary categories that the carbon score is focused on. It's focused on commitment, action, and reporting. So in the commitment, they're assessing a company's commitment. They look for reduction targets in companies of all sizes and companies over 1,000 employees into action plans for low-carbon transformation, as well as into governance structures to facilitate carbon action. Okay? 
So the next one is actually action. They assess a company's action and they they consider this for companies over a thousand employees that are you saying or are you taking your commitment and you're doing something about it? Are you actually showing progress? And then thirdly, and this may be out of all of these, actually the most disturbing is reporting. They give companies scores based on the fact on how they report. Do they have performance reviews? They have monitoring systems for data collection and tracking and monitoring coverage for the entire organization. That is scary because who's collecting that data? Where is it getting reported to? Well, as you think about these, these are called three management stages. Again, commitment, action, and reporting. And they're each scored individually and then they're weighted. And the way this organization weights it is commitment is 25% of your score. Action is 25% of your score, but 50% of your score is reporting. Now, I just told you the reporting is the one that concerns me the most, and that's the one that gives you the highest score. This scoring methodology is aligned with the industry-leading standard of the GHG protocol and reflects the importance of both reporting and monitoring. So I could keep going into that, but the point is this is real, folks. Companies are being carbon score now. So what does this actually look like in principle? Well, if you remember several weeks back, I reported that Tesla was removed from an environmental investment list. Why? Because they weren't ESG-friendly enough. Sure, their car battery meets the definition of environmentalism. I mean, it's the leading electric car manufacturer in the world. But they had social scores that caused them to be kicked out, out of potential future investments in the market. So I know today we're only talking about environmentalism, but the social plays a part as well, which we'll get to. These are all aspects of control and are being forced upon companies. And how do you control what a company does? By threatening the very thing that allows that company to exist, the bottom line, their income, their expenses, the ability to transact in the marketplace. Banks are actually already using ESG scores and carbon scores as justification to do business or not to do business with certain companies' industries. That is what is scary. Now, as an individual, how far of a leap is it to have an ESG score tied to just you, yourself as a citizen? I can tell you it's not that far. Have a gun in your home? Well, that's going to knock your ESG score down. Do you have a gas-powered Suburban? Ah, your e-score is definitely going negative. Have a social media account on True Social, and you talk about some of the gender ideology movement that you don't agree with? Well, that's the ultimate sin. Your S-score just took a nosedive. It sounds like you're not going to be able to shop at major stores and use most major banks. And here is where I personally think this is going and why the interview the last several weeks with Nate Martin is absolutely critical, and that's digital currency. Right now, I can go to the bank and withdraw $500 and go to any grocery store I want, any department store I want, or in my case, I might just want to go to Cabela's because I like to hunt and fish. I can do anything that I want or need with that cash that I withdraw. But what happens when physical cash dries up? What happens when physical cash becomes illegal and only digital currency is available? This is a bit of a teaser, but I'm going to tell you what will happen almost as sure as the sun will rise. I'll be given a citizen's card, maybe even using my current social security number, and I will be given digital wages from work. And already that's mostly true anyway. It's a direct deposit into my bank account. But when the stores I shop at no longer accept cash, then I'm totally reliant on this card, on this digital currency, my digital currency access. Well, with my ESG score, at some point I'm going to be flagged as not having an acceptable score. When that happens, 
I'll not be able to buy or sell. What happens then? Most likely someone, a rebel, the resistance, will find a way to counterfeit that card in a way that we can survive, that I can survive. And what will be the ultimate result of this? To eliminate the horror of counterfeit, of black market, of domestic terrorist activity, because literally that's what this is going to be called, we must make this digital card permanent. We must make this digital currency access permanent. How are we going to do that? We're going to insert a chip under the skin so that it can't be stolen. It can't be counterfeited. Likely in an arm, likely in a hand, because it's a whole lot easier to swipe a hand across a scanner than your forehead or your leg. But you never know. Folks, this brings me to this. We already knew this was going to happen. In Revelations 13, 16 through 17, Scripture tells us, It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Folks, I'm not typically a doomsdayer. I don't live in that space, but this is important stuff. I believe the Lord has graciously given us a roadmap to understand what is coming so that we are not deceived, because the deceptive nature of the Antichrist will be overwhelming. Satan is the father of lies, and when he speaks, he lies, because that is his native language. Deception is the key, which brings me full circle to environmentalism as a religion, the beating heart of ESG. Deception is key to dull your senses, to make you ambivalent, so that you will become annoyed and exhausted at the diatribes and the resistance and the endless arguments, so eventually you just fall in line. And that deception is leading us down a very dark path. So my challenge to you, be alert, be aware, and understand that the times are at hand. Environmentalism is a religion, but it is not a religion that leads to salvation. It is just bringing about bondage, slavery, and destruction. But that's why you listen to The Grid, so that you can be in the know. Thanks for listening to The Grid this week, and we look forward to picking up this conversation soon. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Grid, and a special thanks to our sponsor, Red Balloon, and all the pushback they're doing against wokeness in the workplace. Go to redballoon.work today to learn how like-minded job seekers and employers can find each other. Be sure to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated, your input is valued, and your voice is needed. I'm Chris Coleman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot.